Several announcements to make. One, we do have the Remedy New Testament paraphrase in printed version. And last week I said hard copy. And evidently online some people thought I said hard cover. Okay. Okay. It is a soft cover, but it is a printed version. So it's a hard copy and a soft cover. So just for all the online people, yes, we got these available at no charge in the, in the U.S. We'll ship them anywhere in the U.S. And if you have some you want to share with, just tell us how many you want. They come in a case of 24. If you want a whole case, there's 24. Any, anybody here local today want to take a case or more than one with you to share to your friends or family? Then we have those available. Just let me know. They're in my car. I've got several cases. We'll do that. Um, if you're in Australia or Canada, I've been asked to tell you that they're being shipped from here to our distributors in Australia and Canada. So you can send your requests, but it'll probably be two to four weeks before they arrive, particularly to Australia, um, maybe a week or two to, to Canada. And then they will be available for you to get from those distributors there. And you know, just email Canada at CommonReason.com or Australia at CommonReason.com. So the, they asked me to, to mention that to you. And uh, to also clarify, anywhere in the country, we will ship our DVDs and the remedy at no cost. The book, Could It Be This Simple, is available at certain special events that we do give away, but in general, we don't ship the book, Could It Be This Simple. They are available at a bulk rate. If somebody's interested in that, they can inquire. But all of our books, um, the, the rem- not the remedy, um, Could It Be This Simple, God-Shaped Brain, and Journal of the Watcher are available on Amazon if you're interested in those. And uh, as one of the bonuses for actually coming and visiting us in person, Person, we always have could it be this simple here as a, as a free, free uh, takeaway if you come here to visit. So that's a bonus for coming here. And then um, I also want to announce that, that two of our longtime class members, longtime class members, are graduating this weekend, Ashley and James Fedjusinko. Uh, Ashley is graduating from medical school at Loma Linda, and James is graduating from dental school at Loma Linda this weekend. And With a million dollars for this <laughs> Yes, and two of our class members here, including our treasurer. Chip is the stepfather for Ashley. Lori is Chip's wife and the mother of Ashley. And then uh, we want to give thanks to Dennis and Cammy. Dennis is here today. Last week, Dennis and Cammy uh, manned our booth at uh, the, the uh, J-Fest, which is J103's Christian all-day concert, and gave away over 1,500 of the Remedy and a whole bunch of our DVDs and other resources last week. So, Dennis, thank you for doing that for us. And then today we're doing lesson number 11 in the quarterly, the book of Matthew, and the title is Last Day Events. And just before we get into the lesson, I received this email this week. thought you might find it interesting. I've been listening to your broadcast via YouTube or MP3 for about a year. The ideas make me want to run in all directions at once like a cartoon cat. (laughs) I've tried to share with my children and husband, but they feel angry and threatened that ideas about God that uh, they have held so long are apparently set at naught. As a person caught in... caught in spiritism and other superstitions until the age of 16, the Advent message coming to me in my 16th year that heaven is real and that God would only burn you for a little while seemed bright light. I clung to Jesus, avoiding his mean father, and thought it maturity when I finally came to be okay with the father. Still, I always believed in my secret heart that God was just looking for a way to kill me. What a revelation to find that he really doesn't want to kill me. It has taken me months to let that notion seep through every nook and cranny of the way I think and live. Still, from time to time I become fearful that letting go of all the rules and simply accepting a God of love is dangerous to my eternal salvation. What if it really isn't so easy? 
What if this is a deception or a strong lie? Then I will have lost immortality. What if feeling free in my chest with no tension when I think about God is actually the lie? There must be something I'm missing. Those notions come to me again and again. It's like the painful life that floods into my hands after I've slept on them and stopped my circulation. The circulating blood is life to my hands, but it still hurts to get the blood flowing again. I fight off the notion that God is dangerous with prayer and with reasoning, thinking, reading, listening to your broadcast, talking with friends who brought me to understand design law in the first place. The how-to part of loving is my next task. I'm, I'm nice and never thought that I was selfish and unloving. I am. Yet, I am no longer resigned to staying that way. My husband and children are raised in Adventism and will have none of my offbeat notions that God is safe, loving, Lord of the Sabbath, and is not trying to kill anybody. My youngest son, a late adolescent, actually believes that God kills people despite all our flowery language attempts to hide the fact. He says he loves God and understands that God has to do what God has to do, but let's not lie to each other about it. Mom, he kills people. My hope and prayer is that my sons will someday hear the message, maybe when their souls are hungry and desolate as mine, though I'm seeking ways to make it sooner rather than later. My husband is simply angry that the Adventism he learned at his beloved mother's knee is being impugned on some level, though he can't say how. He will come around because he loves me. I will love and pray and wait and set out literature and talk design law at every chance. I could go on, except that's all you really want to know was my address so that I can see, receive the, the free remedy copies I requested. <laughs> I will give one to my youngest to take to college, one to my eldest who is dutiful and will read it, and keep one for myself and my husband. Thank you for your ministry. Please let me know um, what books I can purchase in quantity and seed and so forth and so on. So, isn't that nice? Could you relate with her struggle, anybody? Yeah. That's a fantastic analogy of the blood going to the sleeping hands. Yeah. It is, isn't it? It's life, but it hurts, doesn't it? You ever had that happen? When it flows back in, it hurts for a little bit? Yeah, it's a great analogy. All right, turning to the lesson today, last day events. What does the title bring to mind? The second coming, that's the culmination of the last day events, but uh, did we think about something before that? Plagues and persecution. Plagues and persecution. Do you ever think, why, why, what is the Lord waiting for? Why is it taking so long? Do you ever think that? And I'm sure you're familiar with 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. How do you understand this? What does it mean? So let's, let's, let's walk through some questions. I'm going to ask you questions now. Why do people perish? What is the cause of their perishing? What is the reason that some will perish? Their choices. Their choices. What else? Any, th- any other thoughts? They don't love truth. They don't love truth. Other thoughts? They're infected with lies and sin. What's another? How, how, sin. What's another word for sin? So what is sin according to? How, how would you describe sin? Missing the mark. Missing the mark. Okay. Selfishness. I heard. Yes, selfishness. Uh, Bible says sin is lawlessness. What does lawlessness mean? How do you understand law? 
oh, God's design and how he's actually built things with all life emanating from him. Life operates in harmony with him. So sin is outside of the design, being out of harmony with how he's constructed life. So when you get your mind around that, then why do people perish? They choose not to cooperate with the design. Yes, and therefore they choose not to be healed or restored. Okay, so then what would be necessary for people not to perish? To ask him to teach us how to cooperate with the design. To ask him to teach us how to cooperate. So in other words, restoration into the people of God's design. Then what do you understand repentance to be? Turning around. Turning around. See, what is it that God actually wants from us? Yes, he wants our love, our trust, our loyalty, our devotion, which means a change of heart because our natural heart is enmity, distrusting, right? So he wants a heart change in us, which is known as repentance. That's what repentance. He wants to heal us. So repentance and healing are the same. Restoration into righteousness. So why will people perish if they don't have love, trust, and loyalty to God. They're disconnected from the life source. They're disconnected from the life source. Exactly right. Exactly. And out of harmony with how life is constructed. Do you know there's other versions of why people perish out there? Yeah. So then what is God waiting for? What is preventing his return at this point in history? There aren't the people that could still be one to trust and love. There are healable people still. People who are not permanently beyond restoration that haven't had the remedy even presented to them yet. Yes? Well, and that could be said to happen on and on and on as long as children are born. You know, so what, what would bring the end of that? And I, I know, I have a theory anyway. I think that Christ will come just before we're about to destroy ourselves. You know, come in and just before we're about to kill ourselves. And the support I have for that is uh, Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly of the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I'll ascend to the tops of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Those who stare at you, they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made the nations tremble, the kingdoms tremble, the man who made the world a desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? All the kings of the nations lie in state, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. You're covered with the slain, with those pierced by the sword, those who descended to the stones of the pit. Like a corpse trampled underfoot, you will not join them in burial, for you have destroyed your land. And killed your people. So one theory, and it's, it's, and it's a very reasonable theory, and let's, let's see if we can't un, unpack that and see if that actually is consistent with other views, that the Lord, is, the Lord will come when the world gets on the brink of self-destruction, that he intervenes at that point. That's one theory. Let's keep that one in mind. Yes? This is bigger than this world. There are this is it's bigger than this world. This is not about us. This is about God and his reputation and the universe. And there may be things that are going on that need to be still demonstrated to the universe that is not evident to us. And, and is that disconnected from what Peter said? No. So, so, the, so the whole universe needs to be saved. So think about this. In, in medical school, did students 
observe disease and disease being treated and sick patients and doctors intervening. They go into observe and learn lessons from that process. Did doctors, though, go make people sick or keep the sickness lasting longer in order to teach the students? So it's important to recognize this. No, it's important to recognize this because there's this idea that, that when you say that, that it is absolutely true. There are lessons being learned by what's happening on this planet that sometimes that gets construed as God is waiting. He's holding back so they can learn lessons. In other words, he's lengthening the time of suffering and disease because lessons need to be learned by the students. I think that's wrong. I think lessons are being learned by the student and by the students, heavenly students. There's no question that's true as it says in, in Colossians and other places. But do you think God is holding or delaying his, his return so that those lessons can be learned? No. That means he's going to keep us in pain and suffering longer than we wouldn't have to just because they haven't learned their lessons. Students need to learn this. We've got a new crew of students coming in. Let's keep this patient sick so we can teach them. Do you truly believe though, that all the disease is here? Yes. On, uh, confined to planet Earth at this time in history. If there are questions, though, that is, that is in... in to my thinking, a way of disease, of just not total distress, but if there's truly unsettledness. Questions and, uh, and lack of understanding is not being out of harmony with God's design. And out of harmony with the design is, this, is sin. So many of the angels who remain unfallen and not secure because their questions had not been answered yet were not deviant from the design. And so they weren't sick, so there's no disease there. There's just questions that, if they remain unanswered, might lead to rebellion. And so those questions will be answered. I just don't see that God is, is delaying his return to deliver us to teach the students in heaven. I don't think that's the reason for the delay. But I do think you're right that those lessons are simultaneously going on for the reason that we said here. And there's a reason that yet has to be revealed. That's part of what Peter's saying. So I think you're exactly right. I just wanted to, to tease out that one little caveat that could be misunderstood for, by that process. Yeah. Um, in the 1850s or 1860s, Ellen White made a comment that Christ would have come ere this were it not for insubordination. Okay, so there's something that needs to happen here, and I think that something will be the, a, a lesson that the universe needs to learn, but the universe is waiting for us, for something to happen here, to learn that lesson. God is not the It'd be the same thing as a medical student trying to learn how a, a remedy works, but the remedy hasn't been given, so we can't learn until the remedy is given. But we're not delaying, the, but the patient won't take the remedy. So the medical student can't learn until the, student, and the patient takes the remedy. That's kind of what's going on as I see it. As far as the universe, when everything was learned at the cross. Oh, no. Oh, no. We might unpack some of those questions yet. Yeah. What happened to the verse where this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and then the end will... We're coming to that. Good. So people keep on... Okay. So let, let's, let's press forward then, because that, that ties into where we're going here. So, so with that one, how about this one? Daniel 12.4. Shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end... Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Knowledge, knowledge will be... Have you ever heard presentations in Bible seminars about the end of time where the knowledge will be increased and you see rapid transportation and, and, and all this kind of stuff and more science and more engineering? And, and, and Is that what the Bible's talking about? Yeah, I don't think the Bible is primarily a scientific book. It's not a science book. It's not an engineering. It's not a transportation book. I don't think it's knowledge of, of how we you know, go from horse and buggy to jets. I don't think that's what this is about. Spiritual knowledge, yes. Spiritual knowledge, okay, yes. Well, and so at the flood, the question might have been answered, if I wasn't surrounded by wicked entirely, would I, I would not be evil. 
Well, the, one of the things the flood did was answer, I just took good people, and look, the same thing happened. Mm-hmm. At the end of time, if Christ came to this earth before we did ourselves in, there might be a niggling question Satan could have said, I could have turned this around if you hadn't come when you did. There's got to be the answer to that. Satan's way will ultimately destroy no hand, no... All- I, oh, I like where you're going with that, and we're going to unpack that when we get to the question of the seven plagues. The last plagues, okay? That, that's connected directly to that. Um, so here's that same passage from the New Revised Standard. We're talking about the question of knowledge. Knowledge shall increase. Some people said spiritual knowledge. What about their, this is the New Revised Standard version. But you, Daniel, keep the word secret and the book sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be running back and forth and evil shall increase. They're suggesting that the knowledge at the end of time that will be increasing is the knowledge of evil. It's kind of in harmony with the theory here. Evil's going to get worse and worse and worse. That's their view. This is the theory. Very common view in Christianity. I have another view. What is the primary message of the scripture? What is the central theme? What is the primary issue in the controversy? The knowledge about God. And the knowledge shall increase. And I'm going to suggest to you, could John 17.3 have something to do with it? Jesus said this is life eternal. Eternal life. And what are we going to get when he comes back? What are we going to have at the second coming? The righteous? We're going to get what then? This mortal puts in mind. We get eternal life. And this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ and now sent. I'm going to suggest that the knowledge that is to increase at the end of time is not the knowledge of evil. It is the knowledge of God that's to increase at the end of time. And this is out of Christ's Object Lessons 415. Then now I also say that new light will be seen. I don't, I don't know that quote exactly, but she talks about light shining and increasing and truth unfolding. Yes, yes. Christ's Object Lessons 4.15. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God has been proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of God's character of love. Could the knowledge that is to increase at the end of time actually be, that Daniel was prophesying about, actually be the knowledge of God that's to increase at the end of time? Could it be that knowledge which is to work to cleanse the spirit temple? Is this not the three angels' message? Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal good news about God's character of love to proclaim to everyone living on earth, every nation, tribe, language, and people, which represents a movement of people who arise to proclaim the truth about God's character of love throughout the world. He said in clear, resounding voice, Be in awe of God and glorify him by living his methods of love, because the hour has come for everyone to make a judgment about God and worship the designer, creator, and builder who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, the springs of water, all which operate upon his law of love. Is that the three angels' message? Or is the three angels' message, hey, he's, he's taking his judgment seat, there's a, ju- a judicial process happening, your records are going to come review, he's going to judge you. Which is, the, which is the true message at the end of time? The latter is the one that's being proclaimed for sure. Everywhere you hear, it's we are being judged. But what is the central issue? Go back to Romans chapter 3, verse 4. Paul says, God, though every man be a liar, may you be proved true and win your case when you take it into court or be proved right when you are judged. Romans 3, 4. 
It has always been, and it always will be. It started in heaven over God's trustworthiness. It will come down to the end over God's trustworthiness. The world is in darkness and misunderstanding about who God is. And the, and the final message, the knowledge that needs to increase is the knowledge about God. So then what about these, uh, these plagues that come out? These plagues. This is going to connect to this idea of revealing Satan's rulership on earth. Letting go. What, what is God's wrath? The vials of God's wrath will be poured out on the earth. The angels come with the vials of God. You call the cup, the bowls, wrath, right? Everybody's familiar with what I'm talking about in Revelation? So what are they? What is God's wrath? I think basically God's very organized. So like when it said like a third of the, the earth, the water's going to turn to blood, a third of the sky is going to turn blood red. I think it equals out to like Satan took like a third of the angels. So w- levels one through four, moral development, see things through law, imposition, imposed law constructs. Then what is wrath in that view? It is the ruling authority imposing punishments on unrepentant and unpaid crimes. Level five through seven, design law, how things are constructed to operate. Somebody's rebellious and they won't be reconciled to how things are designed to work. What's wrath in that setting? Letting the child go to touch the hot stove. Letting the child go to reap what rebellion does in the child. That's what God's wrath is. Is there biblical support? Well, Romans 1.18 and many other places in Scripture, the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And he goes on to describe that, that the wrath comes because they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They, then they uh, exchanged the knowledge of God uh, for lies. They preferred images made with their own hands to the knowledge of God. Notice that central issue. And their minds became dark and depraved and futile, consequence of believing lies. And therefore, verse 24, 26, and 28, Paul says, here's what God does. If you go down this path, if you reject truth, if you prefer lies, therefore, the wrath of God will come. God will let you go. He gives you up. He surrenders you to your choice. And when you step out of harmony, if, if you step off a bridge and you're surrendered to that choice, see what happens. This is, what, this is what God's wrath is. He finally stopped intervening and interceding to hold at bay what sin does to the sinner. So, what would cause God to let go, though? Why, what, what would, if you, you have a loving child who's jumped off a bridge and, and you reached over and you've got them by the wrist and they haven't fallen yet, you're holding on to them. It's your child. What would cause you to let go? Think that through. Because that's kind of a good analogy to the situation. What would cause God to let go? Where? What would cause God to let go of his restraint on earth? Where is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit on earth? And does the Holy Spirit force his way into the hearts and minds of people? So what happens when billions and billions of people on planet earth permanently shut the door, harden their hearts, sear their consciences so hard that no amount of truth, no amount of love has any impact. They are beyond the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, what happens to the Holy Spirit on earth when billions of hearts permanently close? Where does the Holy Spirit go? The Holy Spirit's slowly being withdrawn. People are being given up. The earth is being let go. Why? 
Who's, who's making the choice? It's our choice to close the heart. And the Holy Spirit is slowly withdrawn. And how do God's laws work? Gravity, physics, rain, sunshine. Who's controlling nature? Who's the sustaining source of all of that? Is it not God? What happens when he withdraws and lets go? What happens to nature? Is it an infliction? Or is this the result? This is what we're choosing. We want to step out of harmony. We don't want to live in his presence. This is uh, out of Manuscript Releases, Volume 14, speaking specifically of the, 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 uh, the last plagues and the judgments, judgments of God. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way. They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then, if those who have been the objects of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamities and distress, sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be, for Satan has come down with great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time in short, and he is not restrained. He is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his power than we've ever dreamed of. Yes, in the back. The pattern set during the flood in Sodom and Gomorrah was that uh, God waited until the very last second before he acted. He gave every single chance he could to those going the wrong way, but when the light was about to be extinguished, he acted to remove the cancer. Uh, Your comments? I didn't follow the question. Somebody rephrase it for me. I'm drawing parallels between the intervention in the flood and the intervention at the end of time. That the God acted to remove a cancer before the cancer destroyed I see. the entire species. Okay, yes. So what, what's happening prior to prior all those Old Testament examples, was it possible for humankind to be saved without Jesus coming? No. no. Had Jesus come back then? No. no. So God is acting through the Old Testament times to keep open avenue for Messiah. All those actions in Old Testament times, God's actually acting to preventing Satan. Satan has a strategy. He wants to stop Messiah from coming. Soon as Genesis 3, God says to the serpent, I will, the, the seed of the woman is going to crush her head and you're going to bruise his heel. Messiah's promise to deliver humankind and save this creation. Satan says, oh, no way. I'm going to shut this down. I'm going to stop it. How does he stop it? By getting every human heart permanently closed. You see, God is not going to have Jesus born to a woman like Jezebel or force a woman against her will to be the mother of Christ. You had to have a righteous, willing woman to be the host for Christ to come. At one time at the flood in earth's history, there was only one righteous man left on the earth. Only one. Think that through. The entire planet is only one righteous person left. Everybody else is hardened. And God acts at that time not to punish sin, but to keep open avenue for Messiah. At the end of time here, though, is a different lesson, different process. Messiah's come. The, uh, the, uh, the human species has been saved. Now he's working for several other lessons to be revealed. One, at that time in Earth's history, God did not let earth go into Satan's control. He did not leave Satan to govern the earth. And so imagine you're, you're in the kitchen and you're trying to uh, cook something. And every time you're trying to cook something, somebody else throws something into your, your bowl. And they're throwing all kinds of stuff. And you have no idea what's in there. And every time they do, whatever you put in there comes out awful. Do you take ownership? Yeah, I'm a bad cook. Or do you say, look, if you leave your stuff, keep your hands out of my stuff, I can, I can make a great, great souffle here. Right? 
Isn't that what you'd say? It's not my fault. They're messing with it. Satan's argument is, look, it's God's, God's, God's the one messing. He's never really given, taken hands off and given me the freedom to run this place. And at the seven plagues, it's a seven-step-wise progression of turning things over and letting... And, and it comes because people are hardening their hearts and solidifying in allegiance to the evil powers. And at one point, right before Christ's return... Satan does have rulership and, and nature starts to fall apart. The world starts to fall apart. All that's true. I think there's another, another process though and that's if you, and I'm going to jump ahead and just go ahead and tell you this. Um, Revelation chapter 7. It says, <clears throat> if you, an angel comes to the east telling the angels holding back the four winds of strife. That's what we just read about. Those angels holding Satan's powers in check. Telling them, hold, hold, hold until an event happens. A specific event until God's servants are sealed in their forehead. And in Bible language, go ahead and look it up, there's multiple places, God's servants are his prophets. Now, prophets are not those who simply prognosticate and predict future events. Prophets are his spokespersons, those who stand up like Elijah and speak the truth about God. And so God is telling his angels, hold, 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 until my spokespersons, represented symbolically by the 144 from the 12 tribes, which I think symbolically says people from every walk of life on every nation, kindred, tribe, and people. I've got people everywhere that need to be settled, sealed in their hearts and minds in the truth about how my kingdom works and who can speak the truth about me. And when those group of people are settled, then the four winds begin to loosen. The the plagues begin to fall. And what happens next? As the four winds loosen, these calamities begin to happen. Why? Why has it happened this way? Because most people are caught up in the routines of life, just paying bills, getting up, going to work, getting food on the table. They don't, many of them don't even think about eternal realities. And so as the world starts to fall apart, they start asking the question, just like after 9-1-1, after, after September 11, 2001, many people started asking, what's going on in the world? And many people turned to the Lord at that time. And so what will happen is these calamities begin and people will say, what's going on? And God's spokespersons, they're already settled, they're sealed. They begin giving the true witness, the final message of mercy, to lighten the world about God's character of love. And from that witness, a great multitude, read Revelation 7, from every nation, tribe, kingdom of people, come in and are saved. And so I think the real thing he's waiting for is the knowledge of God to increase on the earth. A group of people to settle to tell that message. Then there is going to be a loosening of the four winds. A great multitude will be saved. And in that shaking and settling process, the hardening of the other hearts will go the other direction. And Satan is given freedom over everything except that elect group. And the whole thing falls apart up until the point that God intervenes to set everything right. All right, Sunday's lesson is titled Blind Guides. And the lesson asks us to read uh, Matthew chapter 23. And the question is, what makes them blind guides? What makes a blind guide a blind guide? I'm going to read to you, starting in um, verse 13, and we'll skip a little bit, out of the remedy in Matthew 23. And, and as we do this, I want you to encourage you. God is love, and Jesus came to reveal God's character perfectly. So I want you to think, if you, were, if you were saying these words to the person you love the most in the world, the person you love the most in the world, your spouse, one of your children, is the person in the position of the Pharisees. That's what they think. That's how they view things. That's how they behave. Your child, your husband, your wife. How would you speak the words? What would be the tone that comes out as you do that, see? Because the tone is left out when we read the words. But I think that Christ's tone might be something different than the harshness that we sometimes hear with it. Misery. 
Misery is yours. You who teach legal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. Your false teachings obstruct people from being healed and entering God's kingdom of love. You certainly are not healed and and do not enter into salvation, but worse still, you actively work to prevent others who want to be saved from being healed. Misery is yours. You who teach legal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. You con widows from their homes, yet you make public displays of praying long prayers. Unhealed, you choose to remain. Your suffering will be most severe. Misery is yours, you who teach illegal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. You go around the world trying to convert one person, and when you do, you indoctrinate them so deeply into your false penal system that they become twice the child of lies and selfishness as you are. Skipping to verse 23. Misery is yours, you who teach illegal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. You keep rules such as proudly paying a pre-tax tithe and even giving a tenth of the herbs of your garden. But you fail to do what actually matters, to live in harmony with God's law, which is the design for life. You fail to do what is right because it is right. You are not merciful, but judgmental and critical, and cannot be trusted to protect those struggling with sin. You should have lived lives of love for others without neglecting the simple instructions of God. You are truly irrational and unthinking teachers. You are so focused on keeping the rules, such as dietary law, that you fail to understand their purpose is to promote health. You're so confused that you actually think it would be a virtue to die of starvation rather than eat something not on the approved list. Misery is yours, you who teach illegal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. You work so hard to make yourselves look good on the outside, but inside, the heart, is full of selfishness, arrogance, and greed. You truly don't understand anything about God's kingdom. The mind, the character, the heart, they all must be cleansed first, and then the outside will also be clean. Misery is yours. You who teach illegal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. You are like highly polished burial vaults. They look beautiful on the outside, but inside are nothing but the bones of the dead and everything that defiles. You are just like that. On the outside, you appear to people as good and righteous, but on the inside, you are full of lies, selfishness, and evil. You are great counterfeits. Misery is yours. You who teach illegal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. You go to great lengths to give praise and honor to God's spokespersons and church leaders of the past. You say, if we would have lived back then, we never would have rejected God's spokespersons or joined those who killed them. By such claims, you condemn yourself because you acknowledge such actions are wrong. Yet your actions today... By your actions today, you reveal you are the true descendants of those who murdered God's spokespersons. You're just like them, and your sins pile on top of the sins of your forefathers. You slippery serpents, you brood of venomous vipers, you think you can cure yourselves with your own snake oil. It's because of your false remedy, your legal, penal legal trickery, that I'm sending my spokespersons, instructors, and Bible scholars, some of whom you will attack, kill, and crucify. Others will be... You will beat some physically, some verbally, right in church, running them out of town with beatings and the most vicious gossip. The pure and holy lives that have been sacrificed through history, from Abel all the way through Zechariah, son of Berechiah, who was murdered right in church at the altar, testify the truth to you. But the sad truth is that this generation will reject all the evidence. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you sick and hard-hearted people who have rejected the remedy, killed God's spokespersons, and stone those sent to you with the cure. 
How my heart is longed to pull you to safety, like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you would not let me. Look around. I leave your house to you abandoned without remedy and infected without cure. For I tell you plainly, when you see me next, you will say, He is the one sent by God to reveal God's true character and provide the remedy. To what were they blind? Their own condition. They were blind to their own condition, for sure. Anything else? Yes, they're blind completely to the character of God. They don't understand his methods. They don't realize his law is design protocol. They see him functioning like a Roman magistrate. They're completely blind to the problem. Their diagnosis is wrong. Their cure is wrong. And any examples of blind leading the blind today? I would suggest to you any theology based on imposed law which represents God as the following. You look for it, you see it, this is blind leading the blind. God as the source of inflicted punishment and suffering and death. If you have a theology presenting God as the source of that, there's the blind leading. Or God is the one who needs to be paid, appeased, or propitiated. God's the problem we've got to fix. Or God is the one we need to be hidden from or protected from. This is blind leading the blind. Remember David prayed? Search me and see the wicked way in me. Create me a clean heart, O God. I've used the example before, but just think about going to the ER sick. You're really sick. You know something's really bad wrong. And as the doctor comes in to examine you, you quickly shove your healthy brother in front of you and say, examine him, and anything you find right about him, put it in my record. How does that help? That's a lot of theology. Examine Jesus and write what you find in Jesus in my record. Don't do anything in me now. Don't change my heart. Don't write the law in my heart and mind. Don't recreate me in the inner man. Don't give me a heart of flesh and take out the heart of stone. No, no, no. Don't, don't change me. Just legally pardon me. God is our creator, redeemer, and friend. This is to be our prayer. Find every defect in me, Lord, and heal me. Fix what's broken. But this only happens when we come back to the truth about God. The dragon was wroth and enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, those who obey the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And what are the commandments of God? Thank you. I give you a new command, Jesus' own words, that you... Love one another. This is the command. That's right. And the testimony of Jesus we talked about last week. All right, in Sunday's lesson, it points out that the Jewish nation was chosen by God to be a kingdom of priests and was prophesied to be a great nation with many blessings, etc., etc., etc. But that didn't happen. They were left abandoned. Why did these prophecies of the Old Testament not come true? They were conditioned. On? Their choices. So is it possible that God at times does the following? Sends his spokespersons to lay out before people two paths. If you make this choice, this is what path you'll go down. You'll end up with these outcomes and these consequences. But if you make this choice, this is what will happen for you. Does he do that? And that's the Old Testament prophecy. He laid out before them two paths. And they're both there. It's your choice. Do we do that today without the advantage of foreknowledge? Do we do that? Do we say to the drug addict... Um, if you continue to use drugs, you're going to have ongoing problems, broken relationships, brain damage, ruined health. But if you choose recovery, then healing, wellness, and salvation will be found. Do we lay that out before people? Yes, we do. We do this all the time. This is what God is doing. He may be more specific about things that we can't see, but we can predict some of this, can't we? How about today? Has something been laid out for the church today? Are the two paths before us today? 
Are we in the position of the Jews 2,000 years ago today? They were Adventists, waiting for the advent of the Messiah, Sabbath keepers, health message, sanctuary believers. Are, are, are we today in a position they were in 2,000 years ago? Are there two paths laid out before us? I'll leave that with you because I want to jump into Tuesday's lesson. In Tuesday's lesson, Sassy has to look at Matthew 24, and Jesus gives a long prophecy of future events and, and life events that might happen. And we see that there's a dual application going on here. And it talks about the abomination that causes desolation. And it asks, what is this abomination that causes desolation and so forth? And we understand that Jesus was prophesying about the Roman armies coming surrounding Jerusalem. They pulled back, people should flee. Now, my question to you is, when Jesus gave this portion of the prophetic vision, speaking about Daniel's abomination that causes desolation, when you see this, was he doing this because he had a divine revelation of a future event? Or was he doing this in this prophecy and describing this because he so understood God's methods and principles and also so understood the character and nature of Satan that he could make this prediction. If you're not following me, let's go, go along with you the following now. Can you predict future events before they happen accurately? Yes. Some, I saw some head shaking. No. If I let go of this, how many can predict what will happen? Yeah. Do you have the gift of prophecy? How can you predict that event? It hasn't happened yet. It's a future event. How can you Because you understand one of God's laws so clearly and accurately that if you take that action, you can predict the outcome. How about this? A woman is married to a man that beats her severely for years and she leaves him. Then he asks her to return and states he will never do it again, but he doesn't get any treatment. He has no repentance before God. Can you predict what will happen if she returns? Um, how about this? A, a person has a pattern of drunk driving and continues to drink and drive. Can you predict what will eventually happen if they, if they continue to do that? Yeah. Um, if you knew God was using divine power to hold back the scorpions and snakes in the desert around ancient Israel, if you knew that, could you predict what would happen if God stopped using his divine power and just simply withdrew the divine power and let nature take its Could you predict what would happen? What would you predict would happen? Snakes and scorpions would come in and they'd get bitten, right? Well, what happened? This, does that mean you have the gift of prophecy because you can predict that? No, but you can predict accurately. How about in the time of Daniel? Could you predict that if God removes his restraining hand, what a nation like Babylon would do? What do human nations do? They conquer. They want to expand their power base. They want to, they, they, could you predict even further, just, just go beyond human nations. Could you predict, knowing that Israel was a chosen nation of God, knowing that there's an evil satanic being on earth driving, seeking to destroy that nation, could you predict that if God removes his, straight, his uh, restraining hand, that the, the evil one would marshal forces to try to destroy that nation? Could, is that predictable? Could Christ predict, knowing that the Jewish nation had just rejected him, and would therefore be set free to reap their choice without, to be without God's protection, that Satan would inspire the worldly powers to come and destroy the nation of Israel, especially the temple, the object lesson, the little theater that was to teach the plan of salvation, that he would have an agenda to want to crush it and destroy it. Could you predict that? Yes, you could. Look at Job. I mean, God removed a restraining, and Satan did everything he could to destroy. So with such future predict. Prediction and predictability, was it um, 
because one understands God's nature, his character, how his laws work, the choice that Israel made, and the nature and character of Satan and selfishness and humanity. Do you know all those factors? Can you make predictions? And you notice his predictions weren't on a specific day and an hour. They were, this is what will eventually happen. This is what's going to happen. And he actually, in, in, in the, about the second coming itself, he said, the day and the hour, I don't know. But he's predicting a process. I think when we understand design law, life becomes much more predictable. Amen. It's less mysterious. You know how many people have lived superstitious lives believing in Christ? Superstitious lives. Why did this happen? God must have wanted it. God must have wanted it. God did it. I didn't wear my cross today. Didn't wear my cross today. Bad things happen. Hocus pocus. Hocus pocus. Some, some, some people believe it came from the Middle Ages when they were doing the Mass in Latin and when the priest in Latin offers the, the Eucharist, the body of Christ, it's hoc es corpus diem. Hoc es corpus diem. Hoc, the body of Christ. Hocus corpus diem. And they didn't speak Latin. And hocus, hocus corpus diem. Hocus corpus Hocus pocus. <laughs> this is what some people believe. Because they didn't have any meaning. They didn't know what... To, some magic's happened. Something's happened. And we don't know. But it's, it's really... It's powerful. It's important. Remember the story of the scorpion and the frog? Yes. Fro- scorpion says to the frog, Will you give me a ride across the lake on my back? Frog says, no way. If I let you on my back, you'll sting me. Scorpion says, no way. If I do that, we'll both drown. We'll both die. Scorpion says, okay. Uh, frog says, okay, hop on. Halfway across the lake, scorpion stings the frog. As the poison's working its way through the, the frog, the frog says, why'd you do that? Well, now we're both going to drown. Scorpion says, it's my nature. <laughs> See, when you understand the nature of things, the nature of God, the nature of his law, the nature of his methods, the nature of the evil one, the nature of what you're dealing life becomes predictable. Now, did anything I say here, anything I say here, mean that God does not give special divine revelation of future events? Did anything I say say that? No. Be very clear, because if I don't if I don't say what I'm saying right now, somebody will leave here and say, Dr. Jennings doesn't believe in prophecy. Dr. Jennings doesn't believe in divine revelation. Dr. Jennings doesn't believe that God reveals things to people in special ways. No, I didn't. No. Both can be true. In fact, I'm going to suggest both are true. Who do you think God reveals his special revelations to? People who don't comprehend his nature and methods or people who do? So I'm going to suggest to you, you have to first come to an understanding of his nature, his character, his methods, the nature of how reality works, and then you're in a position to receive divine revelation of future events and other things. Questions about any of that? Wednesday's lesson, second coming. What do we believe is going to happen before the day Christ appears? You know, ISIS believes in the second coming? You know who ISIS is? Whenever we say ISIS? Do you know they're Adventists? They believe in the advent of the Messiah? They do. They believe in the advent of the Messiah. And they actually have a vision. I want you to get your mind around this. They have a vision for the future. They are apocalyptic people. They believe they have a personal role to play in bringing in the advent of the Messiah. Do you believe you have a personal role to play? We talked about it a moment ago, being so settled in the truth about God's character of love and being a light to give the final message of mercy to the world. We have a role to play. It's a different role completely. ISIS believes they have a role to play too. They believe they actually have a role to incite a, a third world war. 
That's what they're trying to do. That's why they're such outrageous and almost crazy stuff, taking people and publicly beheading them and, and all this kind of bombings and all this stuff, because they're trying to incite a third world war. In their apocalyptic view, they believe that there's going to be this battle of Armageddon where all the nations come to war in the Middle East, and that ushers in their 10th imam who will come back and, and wipe out all the nations, all the enemies of Islam, and punish them. The 12th. the 12th imam. I said 10th, but I think I meant 12th. Do you know many Christians actually have the same vision? That Jesus is coming back with a rod of iron. He's going to come back and he's going to punish all the wicked. He's going to torture. He's going to impose. And this is why we're set up. I mean, as Seventh-day Adventists, see, no, we're not just Adventists, okay? Um, we have a different vision of how things are going to come. And there's going to be two groups of people on the earth. Those who have hold to the testimony of Jesus. What's the testimony of Jesus? We've been, we've been indoctrinated with that phrase because it comes out of the King James Version of the uh, of Revelation in Revelation 19 where it says the, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The newer translations, though, check out the newer translations. And you don't have to check out the remedy. Just end of the others. Okay? And you'll, it'll say uh, this, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit that inspired the prophets. In other words, what did the prophets testify about? What did Elijah, as a prophet on Mount Carmel, say? If God is like this, worship him. If God is like this, worship him. What does the name Michael mean? Who is like God? Who is like God? It's the, who is like Jesus, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? Well, even a correct understanding of the, the actual phrase, spirit of prophecy, the King James, it dovetails perfectly with what you just said. Right. Our knowledge of God, the natural law, dropping the pen, is going to fall. That's a spirit of prophecy. That's a, that's a, it's a gift from the Holy Spirit giving us the knowledge of the design law. And the knowledge of God's true character, which is tied up in that. And so those who hold to the testimony of Jesus are those who give the same witness about God that Jesus gave. That's his testimony. If you think about the word testimony, your testimony is what? It's your witness. It's what you are, are bearing witness or testimony to. And what did Jesus bear witness or testimony to? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. In other words, reveal the Father in your character. Give that same testimony. That's what this is about. Unfortunately, an organizational system has come along and said, the spirit of prophecy means you have this particular gift manifested in those red leather books. And if you've got that, then your system is blessed and you're the ones. And you draw, draw that. That's not what it means at all. Never meant that. It's about character. Developing the character of Christ within. Giving the same witness about God that Jesus gave so in Isaiah when it says how do you talk to people who have another uh, look, outlook on it in Isaiah 26 and 27 towards the end of 26 go my people enter into your room shut the doors behind you hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by see the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins the earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. She will conceal her sin no longer. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent. Okay, okay pa- pause, pause right there. It's good. This is a great text. Thanks for bringing it up. He's going to come out and he's going to punish with his great sword. 
Now, you can't take a single Bible text by itself. You've got to read all the Bible together. It all has to harmonize and integrate. So you put that together with the rider on the white horse in Revelation. The rider on the white horse in Revelation is going to come and he's going to slay them and the blood will be bridled deep and all this. But he slays them with what? What's he slaying them with? The sword coming out of his mouth. Now, how many believe when Jesus comes, he's going to have a piece of metal sticking out of his mouth? (laughs) Or a a lightsaber sticking out of his mouth, as in Star Wars? No. What is it that actually comes? This is symbolic stuff. What is it that comes out of the mouth? Well, well, you're getting too specific. First, what comes out of the mouth are words. Okay? And, And are all words that come out of every being's mouth truth? No. No. But because of the one who's riding on the white horse, you're right. It is truth because the words that Jesus speaks, I am the way, the truth, and the life. His words are always the words of truth. Okay? And so what will slay the wicked are the words of truth, truth and love. This is the, the fire that we talked about last week, the fire of God's unveiled glory, the fires of truth and love, which is the same as the sword. It says in Hebrews, the, the two-edged sword. What are the two edges? Truth and love. That's the two edges, which is the word of God, severing soul from, or, or bone from marrow, soul and spirit, okay? This is cutting, the dividing. It's the word of truth. So yes, they are slain, but people are often very concrete in their thinking. You will find that the immature, not only levels one through four, have a imposed and imperial authoritarian God concept. And in that mindset, they want to feel safe and secure. And how do you feel safe and secure when you're a child? You look to a ruling authority. Two kids are arguing, mommy, daddy, who's right? Teacher, who's right? Referee, umpire, who's right? Make a ruling. Give me a ruling. Somebody in authority, tell me. This is child thinking. And this is what they're looking for. They're looking for a ruling. And so that's imperialism. And they don't abstract well. I love this one. You've heard it a hundred times, but... I'm sorry, I got a frog in my throat. Dr. Jennings eats amphibians. (laughs) I mean, you see how silly that is. It's a metaphor. But many people, when they read Scripture, they do that very silly thing. They read about the sword you just read, and they go, okay, he's coming back, and he's going to have a sword in his hand, and it's going to be probably 10 miles long, because he's really big and he's really powerful, and that sword is going to go, and he's going to wipe out thousands and millions of people with one swing of his sword. And they get very concrete in their thinking. They're childish. That's, That's immaturity. And you read about this in Hebrews 5 and 6. But the mature have developed by practice... The ability to discern the right from the wrong. Why by practice? Back to design law. Here's one of the design laws. The law of exertion. If you want something to get strong, you must exercise it. You want strong muscles, you've got to exercise. You want strong musical skills, you've got to practice your instrument. You want strong math abilities, you've got to work problems. You want strong spiritual discernment. You've got to weigh things out and think them through for yourself. You cannot become a strong musician listening to the stereo four hours a day. You cannot become a strong thinker listening to somebody else preach to you four hours a day. You've got to think for yourself. And many people, that's what they do. They get indoctrinated. I recognize that song. I've listened to that a thousand times. Can you play it? I recognize that doctrine. That's the right doctrine. Do you understand it? Can you explain it? Big difference, isn't there? Mature, developed by practice. That's what our classes for come in reason. My goal is not to tell anybody what they Hopefully I'm doing a, enough of a job to inspire you, to stimulate you, to trigger some things, to get some juices flowing. You're going to have to think about that. I'm going to have to think about that. 
I'm going to think about that. And you'll go home and think and study on your own. That's the goal. Um, Thursday's lesson, it's about, um, in the last paragraph, I don't know if we have time to go into it, um, Jesus is clear, we do not know when he is going to come back. In fact, his coming will be when we don't expect him. And then it talks about um, the second coming, when the second coming happens, really doesn't matter. Sooner or later, judgment will come. And um, I thought about this idea um, that we don't know. What about the parable of the, the servants? Who was the one who said, well, he's delayed. Who knows when he's going to come? The slothful one. The slothful one. The, 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 the dutiful servants didn't say that. Jesus is saying the slothful. In the parable of the virgins, all, all ten are sleeping, but only five are foolish, five are wise. And if you, in, in, I've got some quotations in here talking about what makes wise and foolish. What makes wise and foolish? It's about your character development. The wise have Christ-like character. They've partaken of the Spirit, thus they've been transformed in the inner person to love God and love others more than themselves. They might not know the exact events, but their characters are ready to see Jesus face to face. The foolish have religiosity. They have no character transformation. They have no oil in their lamps. They have lamps. They have the Word of God. They have the doctrines. They might have the right doctrines. The parable, and I'll close with this, the parable of... The uh, Good Samaritan. In that parable, we have four players. The Samaritan, the man who's wounded, the priest, and the Levite. Now, who is the one, at the end of the story, who's recognized as being the one right with God? Who's the one who had... Who who are the ones, though, in the story, who had the right doctrines, the right day of worship, the right dress, and the right diet? The (laughs) The priest and the Pharisees. See, they had all the right doctrines, they had all the right religion, they had all the right behaviors, but they didn't have the right heart. As far as we know, the Samaritan never worshipped on Sabbath, never sacrificed at temple, never ate a kosher diet. Never. But he loved others more than self. He had a Christ-like heart and character. That's what really matters. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are our God of love who constructed and created reality to operate in harmony with your nature, truth, love, and freedom. Lord, we have been so infected so deeply with the distortions of this world that we absolutely need your spirit to enlighten our minds, transform us, and free us from those distortions. We come back to you and we trust you. We see how beautiful you are as Jesus revealed. And we ask that your spirit be poured into our hearts and minds that we might be not only like you, but effective in taking this message to the world, that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.